All right. Book of Jeremiah. The goal tonight, I don't really have a goal other than to work on chapter 7. Typically, what I've been trying to do is say, hey, we're going to finish the entire chapter. But if you look at chapter 7, you'll notice there's how many verses? 34. Now, the chances of covering 34 verses in one sermon is not great unless I was just going to come in here and do like a summary, which I, at some point I'm going to have to do that. I keep trying to avoid doing that um, because there's, as we've read through each chapter, because we have read, at least read and talked about every verse so far, um, even though it wasn't supposed to be verse by verse, that's still not even really verse by verse. But as we've read every single verse in every single chapter so far, we've noticed that every single time we find at least something where we either run into a problem with, wait a minute, who's talking? How do we understand? Is this past, present, future? We run into all of these kinds of issues. Is it figurative language? Is it literal? Is it future? Like all of these things. So I think it's been a good exercise, even though we're not being able to dig in and really take it apart. I think it's been a worthy exercise to at least try that. So the goal is just start chapter seven. I am, the only thing I'm going to do a little different with chapter seven, I do have uh, the Explorer of the Bible a Bible study guide, which they cover Jeremiah chapter 7. So I am going to, to borrow from this a lot and follow some of it. But the main thing is kind of why I'm borrowing from this. I am going to be just trying to work our way through and see what problem we stumble upon and what issue we stumble upon. I think you can also tell that, and again, I always hate to get into this theological dispute, but the, the constant claim that the Bible, you know, is clear and easy to understand by just normal, you know, your normal means. I, I, I think when you get into Jeremiah, you'll notice over and over and over when you're looking at it, if I just say, okay, don't look at any outside sources. Don't look at a commentary. Don't look at anything. Tell me what that verse means. I think over and over and over, if you're even, if you're even like halfway honest with yourself, you're going to have to say, I have no clue. I have no clue. So then you go look up at a commentary. So to me, it's not honest to talk about how the clarity of Scripture, when people can read, like start reading a book of Jeremiah and over and over and over, nobody would have a clue what's going on unless they look at a commentary. Or if you're looking at a commentary, then you do realize what's happening, right? Well, that you're not studying the Bible. You're relying on what someone else said. So, and, 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 then, and then it's like, well, then you've come to a conclusion, but you came to a conclusion by looking at what someone else said, and because you agree with what they said, then that becomes the right position. That's not true Bible study. True Bible study is trying to work through the text without considering what anybody else says and see if you can figure it out. And I think we can know parts of Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, especially some of the minor prophets, Everyone's kidding themselves. Everyone's just kidding themselves to say how clear it is. And not only that, even when you get to the commentaries, what do we find? They don't even agree. (laughs) So then you're kind of like, oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. So we're just going to go through this and see what we find. All right, Jeremiah chapter 7, let's start in verse 1. What do we find in verse 1? The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, all right, now, um, if you go through... Now, I haven't given this as an assignment, but if you go start in Jeremiah 1 and look at every time that is said or or something similar, it almost seems like each time it's its own individual, like here's this individual message to Jeremiah for this specific time, then that message ends, and then the next time it says the word of the Lord came to him, here's the new message, right? Now, we do realize some of these messages are not in what? In order. Now, trying to always put them in order, I've, I've listened to a lot of sermons on Jeremiah recently. A lot of pastors spend a lot of time trying to put it in some kind of order or trying to offer that. What I've realized is a lot of time they spend 20 minutes trying to do that kind of thing, but they don't really articulate how it impacts the interpretation of the text. What's most important is, is there any other information that is pertinent to the interpretation of the text, right? So here, what we just need to know basically is, starting at chapter 7, verse 1, we can almost put, here's another message from God to Jeremiah and Jeremiah to primarily Judah, right? 
Okay, now we'll see exactly what happens here. In this particular case, what does he tell him to do in verse 2? Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, meaning he's being told to go where? To the temple. Now, from that, I'm going to read a summary that, according to the study guide, they call this Understand the Context. So they're going to offer some context here, okay? We're just going to read through this, all right? All right, here we go. The Lord sent Jeremiah to the gate of the temple to deliver his next message. The prophet warned the people not to trust the deceitful words of those who insisted that Jerusalem and its inhabitants were safe from judgment simply because the temple was in their midst. Instead, their only hope to avert God's judgment was to repent and return to the Lord and faithful worship and service. So they are summarizing this is basically as a message from God to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is to deliver it where? At the gate of the temple or at the temple. And it's a warning of what? Telling the people not to trust the words of whom? Those who are saying, you're safe. And why are you safe? Because the temple is here. Instead, what do they need to do? Repent, return to the Lord in faithful worship and service. All right? So, now I. I, Yeah, don't trust in the building. Now, the argument could, now this is, uh, this is an interesting thing. We, uh, la- last night I did two hours of review on a sermon dealing with Shiloh because Shiloh becomes an, uh, it was a, an assignment I gave everyone for the Bible study exercise because Shiloh is mentioned in chapter 7. But this is very important. Um, are they trusting in the temple or is it just kind of a logical progression of thought? Well, if the temple is here, who dwells in the temple? God, therefore, well, then therefore nobody can come in and conquer us because who can conquer God? So maybe it's not so much that they're trusting in the building, that they're trusting that since God is present, nobody can take us. Like, it's, it's hard to stop. Now, now, if we read the text and if their motive is clearly articulated, then we will judge their motive. But I'm saying just from the surface, it may not necessarily be, hey, we're trusting, we're trusting in the building. It could be that they're trusting... Well, God is here, and if God is here, who can defeat God? Logical answer? No one, all right? So maybe that's the key. But here's the question, the theological question I want to ask. Not only does this study guide seem to indicate this, it seems that you read this a number of times in the Old Testament, right? It goes something like this in the Old Testament. Hey, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, And the only way to avert judgment is you must do things. That that guy just gave a list of things that they were supposed to do. What were the things they were supposed to do? Repent. Return to the Lord in faithful worship and service. So the only way to avert judgment is based on what they do. Now, here's the million dollar question. If the only way to avert judgment is based on what you do or don't do, were they ever going to be able to honestly, truly avert judgment? That's 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 just the million-dollar question. I will say from Genesis Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, right? Genesis to Malachi, what happens over and over and over? Failure, 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 right? Even if they seem to be doing something temporarily, does it ever last? No. So the question is, why would the Old Testament constantly give, do these things and you will avert judgment only for them to turn around and do those things and, and face judgment? Well, what, how do we understand that? Now, if you remember back to the lengthy series that I still need to finish on Law and Gospel, this is, why law, this is why that series was so important, and I tried to emphasize telling everyone the most important series we had ever done because it really helps you in how to interpret this. If God is telling them, hey, judgment is coming, do this, you will avert judgment. What is that when you understand a proper distinction between law and gospel? 
It's law. Okay, good. Okay, good. It's law. Meaning that it's only going to reveal what? Their inability to do so. So the only hope is not, hey, do this and you will avert judgment. It should be, Lord, I can't do this. I need something other than a list of things to do. But most Christians preach it and teach it as they could do it. They should do it. And it always follows that in the sermon. They could, they should. Well, that means they could. They could, they should. What always follows, come on, if you've ever listened to sermons. No, we should, we can. It always goes from them to us, right? You know how every sermon that's ever been preached is preached, right? I mean, I, mean, I, can, I, can, I can grab my iPad and just start playing sermons for you for about eight hours, right? I mean, it's what all sermons do. Hey, Israel should have, they could have, and you can, and you should. The implication is always in the Christian world is that we have the power to do so. Now, sometimes what we argue is they couldn't, but we can. But we can. Now, the issue is, can we? Now, that, look, that this, the answer to these questions greatly determine the way you perceive Christianity. The, 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 way, the way you uh, look at this greatly determines everything, right? This, this determines so much in how you view theology and how you view scripture. When he says, when, when this study guide says the only way they were to avoid judgment, avoid judgment is to do what, three, four things. Well, then we know how it's going to end, right? How's it going to end? Judgment. What happens? They go into captivity. Even when they come out of captivity, what happens? They fell and go right back into Captivity. Yeah, well, I mean, when we open up the New Testament, where are they? Rome, under control of Rome, right? And then what happens after that? Destruction of the temple. And then the, then the quote-unquote, the new kids on the block, the church, how does the church fare? I mean, I mean, I, you, you open your Bible, and what do you see? How, how's the church doing in 1 Corinthians? How's the church doing in 2 Corinthians? How's the church doing in Galatians? How's the church, I mean, look, just go on and how's the church doing in Jude? How's the church doing when you get to the seven messages to the seven churches in the book of Revelation? Okay, I mean, that, I'm just saying that over and over it's made up of failure, 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 fa- failure. So I think it's fascinating whenever I read these passages, I'm like, if Israel would have just done the right thing, they avoided all the problems. But was, there, was it even possible for them to do the right thing? That's, that's, I think, uh, look, not, I, I, and if you tell, if you say it's not possible, 99% of Christians will disagree with you. Or they may agree with you that they couldn't, but they will definitely argue and say that we can because we now have been given supernatural power. They go on. God rejected the people's sacrifices because of their hypocrisy. They acted like they were devoted to the Lord while at the same time worshiping other gods. They were even sacrificing their children in the Valley of Hinnom to those gods. Jeremiah declared that the Valley of Hinnom would be called the Valley of Slaughter because scavengers would devour the carcasses of the idolaters in that place. We'll read about some of that in in Jeremiah 7. The people claimed to be wise because they had God's law, but they continually behaved in a way contrary to its demands. Now, I want you to, you may want to write that phrase down. The people claimed to be wise because they had God's law, but they continually behaved in ways contrary to its demands. The people claimed to be wise because they had God's law, but they continually behaved but they continually behaved in ways contrary to its demands. Now, the reason I stress that is I feel that nothing has changed. As Christians, don't we almost feel superior and brag because we have God's law, we have God's word, and the world out there doesn't have it, and so we know right from wrong, we know the truth, and we stand for the truth, and we're going to defend the truth, and we're going to promote the truth because we're Christians. And then what do we do over and over and over? Do we not behave in ways contrary to its demands? I, I'm, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you just the basic. What, what are the basic demands of, of God's word? 
Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Anyone ever behave contrary to that demand? Every day, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, we fall short. Be holy as God is holy. Put others before yourself. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Resist not evil. Right? We, do we not? So I, th- I don't feel like anything has changed. Christians think, well, I've got the word of God. We're somehow superior to the ugly, horrible world. But what do we do over and over and over? We behave in ways contrary to its demands. What's more, the religious leaders misled the people by causing them to believe all was well when God's judgment was imminent. Because Judah refused to repent, the Lord was sending an army from the north that would devastate the land and wipe out its inhabitants. Now another, again, this from a theological standpoint. When we say someone refuses to repent, that's a big statement, is it not? What are the basic views on repentance in the, in the Christian evangelical world? Okay, just, there's, there's very specific views on how repentance happens, right? Okay, we talk about this every time, and every time I've met with silence. Okay, no, that's the definition on how repentance works. Okay, right, either repentance is a work of self, meaning I refuse to do it, Right? Okay, or I choose to do it. It's a work of man or it's a work of God. If it's a work of God, then refusing to repent is whose fault? I mean, th- I mean, these are basic theological questions that I know you're not supposed to ask them in church, but you're supposed to ask them in church, Right. Now, you can say, well, they refuse, but because we're all sinners with a depraved nature, is that not the, that's, that's all we're ever going to do, right? So if God is the one who, this, look, this just leads to so many theological problems. I don't even know sometimes how to wrap my mind around it, but it just becomes an issue, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God, okay? Well, he more tried to just scare people to death with hell than anything. But yeah, um, I mean, it's a, a little bit, I mean, it's not even so much about that. It's just the idea is when, when, when the study guide says they refuse to repent, I'm not going to say that you can't put blame on them, but I'm saying ultimately, who causes people to repent? If you say it's God, well, it's not just God's great. Who, I mean, is it a supernatural work or is it not a supernatural work? In other words, is repentance simply, I give you information and you go, okay, I'm going to change my mind and I'm going to believe that. All right, I've repented. Or does God have to grant the repentance? If God's the one granting the repentance, then what would be the obvious struggle you would have with the books like Jeremiah or any of the books in the Old Testament? Even before we get to New Testament issues. Why didn't God grant them repentance? Because if he granted them repentance, then what would, be, what would happen? Then they would not have to go to, well, no, a captivity, 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 right? Right? Is, is there, I mean, are, is everybody, I, mean, I feel like I'm getting these looks like I'm like talking some nonsense, okay? This, this is, well, again, it depends on your theology, some theology would like, no, they repented versus Judah not repenting. Or God granted them repentance and didn't grant them repentance. What do you think, what do you think most Christians would say? Yeah, that it, it, it's, it's man who makes the decision. Now, sometimes Reformed people will say it's God, but then they kind of waver when you get to situations like this. But it's, it's, it has major implications on the book. Does everybody understand? It has major implications on the book, all right? All right, so, all right, I, I feel like that, I don't know, uh, okay. 
I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm getting looks like, uh, that, like, I don't know. I, 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 maybe this is not supposed to be talked about in church, but any reasonable person reading it should be like, uh, there's a problem here, right? But okay, I'm going to read this entire uh, paragraph again. The people claimed to be wise before they had God's law, but they continually, beh- or they, people claimed to be wise because they had God's law, but they continually behaved in ways contrary to its demands. What's, what's more, the religious leaders misled the people by causing them to believe all was well when God's judgment was imminent. Because Judah refused to repent, the Lord was sending an army from the north that would devastate the land and wipe out its inhabitants. And I'm just saying, when you read that, every, every individual who reads that, you have to answer in your own mind, why did they refuse to repent? And the answer is either God didn't give them repentance, they chose not to, and so it's on them, right? The Lord was, uh, so the Lord was sending an army from the north that would devastate the land and wipe out its inhabitants. All that would be, le- all that would be left uh, for them would be to mourn and lament because of their destruction and exile. Those who thought they were wise, strong, wealthy must not boast in those things. God alone is faithful, just, and righteous. Jeremiah praised the Lord, declaring there is no one like him. The Lord alone is the true and living God and eternal king. Next, the prophet expressed his grief over the impending annihilation of Judah and pleaded with God to be merciful in his judgment. He also asked the Lord to to be sure to punish the nations that had brutalized his people. Now, that's a kind of a summary of chapter 7 all the way to chapter 10, verse 25. As a summary of all of that. So we could just stop there, but we can't now because we're going to now work through chapter 7. But that gets us at least kind of close to you have an idea of what's going on. Right? Everybody ready? Now let's go back to chapter 7, verse 1. All right, the word that came to Jeremiah from the, from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at the gates to worship the Lord. So, he is standing there, and a sense the people are coming to the temple to do what? To worship, and he wants them to hear what? God's word. They come to worship, he wants them to hear God's word. Now, in, uh, you would think that what would take place at this point? Well, if they're coming to worship, you think they would be more than willing to hear what? God's word. You think they would. Let, let's see what happens. Verse 3. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if, if, for if ye th- uh, thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, If you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave you to your fathers forever and ever. Now stop right here. Okay. Now, all of this is a list of things that they are supposed to do. Right? So let's write down the list of all the things they are supposed to do or not do. All right, this, this list starts, uh, we'll, we'll go all the way to verse four, all right? Well, we could, we could go it this way. Let, let's start, the first thing that they are to do is they are to listen to God's word, right? They are to hear God's word. They are to listen to God's word. That's the first thing they are to do. They are to listen, all right? That seems pretty easy. In fact, even, even the uh, Bible study guide, they call Jeremiah one through two, listen. They call it to listen. So they are to listen, all right? What else? After they are to listen, then what are they to do? What's the second thing? Amend your ways. Amend your ways and your doings. Amend your ways and actions. They are to amend. The uh, NIV translates amend. Reform your ways. All right? So change your ways. Change your actions. Listen and change what you're doing. Now, it's going to even get more specific, is it not? Next, what are they to do? Stop trusting or listening or believing lying words. Stop believing and listening to lying words. 
Well, the people who are saying the temple, the temple, because the temple is here. You don't need to, you don't need to worry about anything, all right? But just don't trust in light words. So, so far, what are, you, what are they supposed to do to, make, to fix all of their problems? Listen, change their ways, and no longer trust in false words. Well, I know. <laughs> well, well I, from, a, from a practical standpoint, yeah, who, how are they to know who's to telling the truth? Because the others would claim that their message is from God, and Jeremiah would claim his is from God. So who do you know? Right, I know. Yeah, the, that's a whole. <laughs> that's a whole different problem, uh, in, in not only at that period of time, in all periods of time. But go ahead. Right. Right. Right, it's easy to blame the people. Hey, why are you listening to these false prophets? Well, the only I, well, I mean, you can say you should listen to Jeremiah. Well, you know they should listen to Jeremiah because Jeremiah is in our Bible. They have no clue. Right? Some guy just walks up and says, "Hey, I've got the word of the Lord." And like, well, that guy over there has the word of the Lord. I would hate to live at that time. I'd hate to live at that time. It would be utter madness. Now, in some cases, some of the prophets were able to confirm that their message was from God through signs and wonders. But in some cases, there's just, you got to take his word or his word. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Right. The majority or do you go with the minority? <laughs> Right. So what, what would you do? Like if you lived in that point, we, most people would go with the majority. You're like, there's got to be safety in numbers, right? And the multitude of counselors, there's a, you can even quote scripture to prove your point, right? I know, it, it would be maddening. And, and now we would say, well, go with scripture. Well, that sounds good, but every, every, everyone preaching a message claims that their message is the scripture. <laughs> so... Well, it's those pre- preaching basically you're safe because of the temple, it seems, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, oh, they, they've been basically, yeah, we're good, we're safe, we're good. Obviously, anyone saying that we're safe is giving you the wrong words. Okay, okay right, so, but, but again, you would only know that those are the wrong words if you believe Jeremiah was telling the truth. Like, they don't have some, like, they don't have an app, you know, that goes, ding. True prophet, true prophet, just arrived, true prophet, because it'd be like, well, I hear from God. And the other prophet would say, I hear from God. <sighs> Never mind, just forget it. Right? I, mean, I don't know what I would, I think I would just be like, you know what, I hear from God. You're all wrong, right? Everyone hears from God. Yeah, now for us, yeah, we, now it's easy, right? We're not, when we read it, we're like, what is wrong with you people? Listen to Jeremiah. But you don't live then. You would be like, well, why do I have to listen to him? Who made him special? Right? So, but let's go through the things they're supposed to do. They are to listen. They are to amend their ways. They're to not trust in lying words. And then start in verse 5. What do we have here? For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor. Now, We've already got the amend your ways, so we won't repeat it, but now we have a specific thing of what they're supposed to do. Specifically, and they're thoroughly amending their ways, what are they to do in verse 5? Execute judgment between a man and his neighbor. How does the NIV have it? Okay, they have to start acting in a way, a just way with, oh boy, we can't say those words. That'll be social justice, and we'll be called a woke church. We can't do that. We can't speak of that. No, no. The Bible never tells us to act justly. Okay. All right. No, I'm a little bit of sarcasm, because anytime you talk about justice, people are like, that's social justice, and you can't go there. But God demands that people act what way towards one another? In a just way. Once again, this is specific instructions telling them to act in a certain manner. 
Right? What's next? All right? Oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. So what does it mean to oppress the... Who's the stranger? Immigrants. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. We can't talk about that either. That'll be a, we'll be a woke church. We can't do that. We've got to build a wall and, and, and say all co- those kinds of things, right? They're not to, and basically, what are the, the people they're not to oppress? The, uh, the immigrant, the alien, the foreigner. Okay, who's next? The fatherless. In other words, this is simply like, do, hey, do justly between people and don't take advantage of those who are in a weak or fragile state. And people who are an immigrant in a country, right? They're going to be at a disadvantage. Those who are fatherless may be at a disadvantage, and those who is a widow may be in a disadvantage. But what's again? What are we getting? I just I cannot stress this enough theologically. I want everyone to see we are being given what to fix their solution: law, 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 law. Now, from a theological standpoint, if you have never read the Bible but you understand law and gospel. At this point, you almost want to start screaming at the text going, it's not going to work! Right? What's next? Shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt. All right? That's a list of things to do. Now, I want you to just try to wrap your mind around it because this should theologically kind of, this should, this should lead to some like real difficult conversations. Even if, you don't, even if you don't have the conversation with me, you should have deep, hard conversations amongst one another or just yourself. We're in a chapter where Jeremiah goes to the temple to talk to the people. They're basically told, repent. Now, you have a theological dilemma, right? If you're making a flow chart of this, right? Okay, who determines if someone is going to repent? Well, I mean, again, you can have your own theology on it. I'm not here to even get into a debate over it. If you believe people can do it, well, then congratulations. You, now, what, what flows from that? If you believe people can repent, what has to flow from that? What, what theology must you then go to? Nobody? Anybody online? <laughs> okay. You have, don't you have to go to Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism? Right? Because they don't believe the fall impacts the... the right, right? Okay, all right, all right. So I'm just saying, you, if you want to believe people can repent, then that's on you. That's on you. Okay, that's on you. I know everybody's silent. Stephen's trying. Okay, help me out, people. All right, okay. So I'm just saying, if you want to believe that, that's fine. Just don't say you believe in total depravity because that's a lie. You now, you're now a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian, and that's okay if you want to be a semi-Pelagian. I mean, it's complete heresy, but that's perfectly okay. I don't care anymore about fighting theological battles because it's irrelevant anyway. People are going to believe what they want. But that, that's where you have to be. Now, that's okay. Then you can look at it and go, well, God told Jeremiah to repent. They refuse to repent. It's all their fault. And then, then who gets off the hook? God. Now you feel good. Now, does God really get off the hook? Why does God still doesn't, why does that still not get God off the hook? If you say that they could have repented, if you even go with a semi-Pelagian, Pelagian view that the fall doesn't impact the will of man, does it get God off the hook? Okay, how does it get God off the hook? All right, so th- then God is just, he's good to go. And whose minds? Okay, I'm just talking logically. Does it get God off the hook? Okay, how does it not get God off the hook? 
I got one saying yes, I got others saying no. How does it not get God off the hook? Oh, wait, I got answers coming online. Okay, good. All right. All right. All right. Here we go. Okay, good. All right. I knew so much. All right. No, because he still created us. Right. All right. Yeah. You can't, you can't get God off the hook. In the beginning, who's there? Okay. In the beginning, anybody who listens to my podcast. Okay. All right. All right. I'm joking. All right. All right. Come on. In the beginning, who was there? God. Okay. The God who creates, what are some basic attributes of said God? All-powerful. Come on, there's another one. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Now, if he's going to create people, and then he's the one, like, I'm going to give them free will, but he knows exactly what that's going to do, right? If you go tell your child, hey, you can go play in the street, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that they're going to get hit by a car, is it the kid's fault or your fault? Right? In other words, if God is the one creating the situation, knowing exactly what's going to happen, you can't get God off the hook. Because he's the one who gave the will that then is going to lead to the very thing that you know is going to happen, right? All right, so you can't get... So I, I, everyone feels like that gets God off the hook, and I've never understood how people feel like that. Remember, I say all the problems start where? Genesis 1.1, all the problems start there. Okay, so... Genesis 1-1 is the problem. So even if we say, hey, Judah could have repented, it, it, it doesn't really get them off the hook. But e- so, so either one, you believe they could repent. But not only to believe that they could repent, what else would you have to believe? Not only that they could repent, what else would you have to believe? They could do these things. How many things have you, did you write down? We were listing them. I told you to write them all down. Eight things. You said eight? Seven things. Okay, let's go through the seven things that they were supposed to do. They were supposed to listen. Change their behavior. Don't believe lies. Deal with others justly. Don't oppress the stranger or the weak. Don't shed innocent blood and don't walk after other gods. They were to avoid all this. So you would have to believe that not only can they repent, that they in and of themselves can do what? Keep that. Now, typically, what the go-to answer is, well, they couldn't do it, but through God they could. Well, then that would mean like, well, then if, if is God the one giving them the strength to do it, so then why did it... Well, it just, it's, it, there's no good answers here. What I want you to see is that in every situation where they are told to do all of these things from the repenting to the doing is that in every situation, from a theological standpoint, the answer should be they can't. They can't. Preachers take it and preach it as they can they have a seven-point sermon outline, and then they yell and scream that you should be doing these things. And then you say, oh, I was so convicted, Pastor. What a great sermon. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to do all of these things. And then until next week when you realize you didn't. And then you'll get convicted and then say, I'm going to do it, until you realize you can't. That, that, I'm saying that you, that you should be confronted with this in Jeremiah because it's a never-ending list of do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. At some point, you should be greatly bothered by it. All right, we're running way out of time. This is taking way too long. All right, so we stopped at what verse? Seven, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Obviously, they never do that because they don't stay in the land forever, forever. In fact, are they still truly in the land? No, because they still have been unable to do so. Now, this is so important, right? Now, here's, now listen, listen, listen. This is so important. Israel could never do what was demanded of them. They never could pull it off, right? 
How do we know that? They didn't keep, they never got the land. Even if you think they got it, they only got it for about five seconds. They lose it. They go into captivity. They come out of captivity to go back into captivity to be wiped off the face of the earth to be reformed as a nation in 1948 and they still don't have the land. So then your options are, well, they never get it because they can never do the right thing and done to to done magically. We get the promises and somehow we can possibly do so. Now this comes into play because there's a big There's there's some passages that talk about a day coming when God is going to do a supernatural work inside people. Right? Everybody familiar with those passages? Let's find them in the Old Testament where God's going to replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Right? We We got at least two places. I know it's in Jeremiah and I think it's also in Ezekiel. Okay, let's find the passages. This is so, like... This is like hardcore theology here. Like this is like. Okay, now see, this is so important. Okay, I want you to mark Jeremiah 7, all right? I cannot, oh, this is so important, all right? I wanted to get much further in this, but if all we get is this, this is so important. You said Jeremiah 31. Now, when you get to 31, everybody know this chapter, right? 31 may be one of the most important chapters in the entire book of Jeremiah, right? Because this is what? This deals with what we call the? The new covenant. Oh, this is so important, the new covenant, right? The new covenant is typically preached as something for whom? Us. Now, let's read everything that happens here in the, in the New Covenant, all right? Can you see if you can find the one for Ezekiel? Okay, good. All right. Go to Jeremiah 31. Start in verse 7. Yeah, 31.7. All right, 31.7. Now, if you go back... Uh, Man, well, we could all read a part of chapter 30, but okay, but we'll go to uh, verse 7, all right, 31, uh, 7. Uh, for thus saith the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations, publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travelleth with child. Together a great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping. And with supplication will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I'm a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. This is the regathering of Israel. They're all going to be brought back from all the different countries. Yes? Okay, verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, declare it in the isles afar off and say, he that scattered Israel shall gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Now what should jump out at you in verse 10? But it uses Israel. Israel usually references the the northern kingdom, right? Okay, the northern kingdom at the time of Jeremiah had already been gone for a hundred years, right? So it's using Israel now to refer to both sides. Like those are questions you have to ask. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and transformed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. They shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for, the, and for the young of the flock and of the herd and their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Now either you have to say this is hyperbole and this is simply describing Judah coming out of Babylonian captivity, but it seems to go way beyond that, does it not? One, it uses Israel instead of Judah. And two, it has... Everybody, all, everyone being regathered. Does it not sound like that? Then shall the virgin rejoice in, in the dance, both young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will uh, satiate the soul of the priest with fatness and my people shall be satisfied with goodness, saith the Lord. 
Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Uh, Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Now, we know that's quoted in in the New Testament, right? We could get into all the implications here. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. Now, if, if, if verse 15 is quoted in the New Testament and something is to happen after that, verse 15, where is that quoted in the New Testament? The babies at the time of Jesus. Now, if that happens, well, if that, if that references in the New Testament, well, after those babies are killed, when does all the rest of this happen? When is all of Israel regathered back into the land? That doesn't happen. In fact, now what happens after that? Israel's going to be destroyed. So then, is this pointing to something future? Does, that, does everyone see the implications? All right, then we have more going on here. Uh, There's so much we could talk about. And then all of a sudden, look at verse 31. Behold, the day is come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who is this referencing? Now, many say it's the church. Many say it's us. I say there's no textual reason not to understand that this is the nation Israel, right? Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. That's a dead giveaway, right? He just mentioned the covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. Their fathers, that's not referencing the church. It's referencing the nation. In that day I will, uh, in that day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant, they, verse 32, they break or they broke, depending on your translation, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. How did they break the covenant? We just read all the things they were told to do in chapter 7. Do they ever do those things? No. They constantly were guilty of it. So what's the ultimate solution? Okay, I want everyone to listen. Okay, I'm going to run out of time here. Over and over and over, in Jeremiah, Israel is being, or Judah is being rebuked for their sin. And the solution that is offered to them over and over and over is what? Do something. Law, 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 law. They never do it, right? Even if there's a period where you're like, look at them. They, they all, they started tearing down the idols and they seem to be so godly. It only lasts for what? Just a little while. All they do is destroy the external idols that never get rid of the sin that's inside of them, Right? So then look, what is the ultimate solution? The day is coming that God's going to do something. Now, please note, who's now in, in chapter 31, starting in verse 31, it's not about what they do. When it talks about what they did, they disobeyed, they break it. Now, God's going to step in, right? And what's God going to do? But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is going to do a work. Not them. God is going to do a work. And he's going to do a work internally. Now, do a work internally for whom? This is where pastors and Christians and any church you have friends who go to, I guarantee you they're going to say, no, God does that for you. He does that for me. He put the word in my heart. Well, then what happens? And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This speaks of they're not even going to need to be taught anymore. Everyone's going to completely know God. Clearly that's not us. So then we make, we go, well, he didn't, that, now it's just a little bit of hyperbole. No, I think this is for Israel. The ultimate, the ultimate solution for Israel is God has to do something for them because every time he tells them to do something, they can't do it. All right, what happens? And, and, and then look what happens in the um, verse 35. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light of day and the ordinance of the moon of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea, 
When the waves there, therefore uh, thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, them the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, he basically gives that all of these things that we see are proof of this covenant, a proof of this promise, right? God's not going to get rid of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all they have done, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come and saith the Lord that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower to Hananel unto the gate of the corner. And then he goes on and talks about all of this and you're going to have uh, back to land and you're going to have all of those things. Something dramatic is going to happen. Ezekiel, what's the chapter? Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to see very similar, maybe I think it's even stronger in Ezekiel, isn't it? I believe it's even stronger. You said 36? Starting uh, verse 25, right? Ezekiel uh, 36, 25. Everybody there, 36, 25? Going to run out of time, going to run out of time. 36, 25, 36, 25. God speaking, or through Ezekiel, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now, please now, isn't this radically different language in 36.25? Over and over and over in Jeremiah, what do we see? You get rid of the idols. You do it. 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 And no matter how many times he says you do it, it ends up in failure. Finally, all of a sudden, God's saying he's going to do what? He's going to cleanse the idols from you. And then he's going to put a new heart will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now, immediately, this is and almost any church you go to that is preached to be referring to whom? us and supposedly when does that take place at our salvation and then you have the very next line have you been cleansed from all idolatry okay in my position but not practically right no a new heart i'm going to give you uh, i'm going to change your heart completely i'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to do what to walk in my statutes and you shall and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. We don't do them. Does everyone understand the implications here? Over and over and over, what is the solution given to Jeremiah to give to Israel? Over and over and over. Do this, do this, do this, do this. What do we know historically? They don't. They fail, they fail, they fail. And after failure, 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 finally we have these amazing promises that says that time is coming somewhere in the future that God is going to do what? He's going to completely fix all the problems in Israel. Now, in Ezekiel in Ezekiel uh, 36... Uh, we, once again, we can, we can go back, but I, I, you obviously know this is referring to the Israel's being talked about over and over. The house of Israel's mentioned leading up to it over and over. There's like, there's no way to get around that. Okay. Uh, but just continue reading and look at, and verse 28, just to know who we're referring to. Verse 28, and you shall dwell, Ezekiel 36, 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers that's not the church ladies and gentlemen that's not the church and you shall be my people and i will be your god i will also save you from all uncleanliness i will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you i will multiply the fruit of the tree and the inc- i mean you, one of that's ever happened in israel ever So what God demands of them to fix their problem, it never happens. So they, in fact, basically, Israel should reach a point that they do what? From a logical standpoint, they should reach a point that they should do what? Logically. 
I can't. We've tried, Lord, a million times. We can't, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. They should reach the same point that Luther came to, right? I can't do it. I've tried. I've, I've disciplined myself, whipped myself. I've, I've done everything I can. I, I can't do it. I've been to confession. I've tried. I've tried. I tried. I can't do it. And then finally, God has to step in and says, I'm going to take care of the problem. And the same thing is true for us. All of those rules that he's giving Je- Jeremiah to give to the people, we look at those rules, and for some weird reason, pastors preach it, and everybody in the pews like, amen, yeah, yeah, we can do it. We're not like those ungodly liberals. And we fall short of all of them. We should all be brought to the same point. Under God's law, I am hopeless, helpless, and I am Condemned, right? Now, go back to Jeremiah 7. All right, Jeremiah chapter 7, back to verse 8. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you still murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and burn incense unto Baal and walk after other gods whom you know not and come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we have, deli- we have delivered to do all these abominations? In this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers. And your eyes, behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. But go ye now unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. Now, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, Shiloh was the place where they kept what? Yeah, yes, the ark. That's where they kept the ark, okay? So... Uh, and that's why I gave the assignment for sh- everyone should be an expert on Shiloh because he tells the people, go look at Shiloh. That's why you have to be an ex- If you're going to understand J- Jeremiah 7, you should be an expert on Shiloh, right? So that's why I spent the two hours reviewing the sermons on Shiloh. And I, gave, and I told everyone to look up other sermons because we need to know Shiloh. Well, what happened is Israel gets defeated, right? 4,000 people die. So then they're like, oh no, since God's not helping us, let's go get the ark and it will save us. And they go get the ark and then 30,000 people die. 34,000 people die and the ark is captured. And he's like, hey, so but immediately what I want you to realize is don't you see the futility of this entire episode? If in 1 Samuel 4... Their actions is disobedient and sin, which leads to death and destruction. Now he gives them, do this, do this, do this, do this. Are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? Hey, go to Shiloh. They're right back into the same. I don't know how many years have passed from Shiloh to here. I'd have to look it up. But if you figure out how many years, they're right back in the same situation. Does that make sense? Not only are they right back in the same situation. Did you notice, I read a verse that sounds very similar to what we have in the New Testament? In verse 11, did did, did that ring catch anyone's ear? What does that relate to? Yeah, when Jesus cleanses the temple. So, okay, I need everyone. We're going to have to stop right here. I need everyone to pay attention, okay? Because I feel like I've lost everyone. So I need to make sure everyone gets this. They have been told how many things to do? Seven things. They don't ever do them. We get to 7-11, and he makes a reference to what they're doing to the worship of God. They have corrupted it. They've turned it into a den of robbers. When we look forward... Right? I believe from Jeremiah to Christ, I believe it is, I think I wrote, about 600 years. 600 years into the future. 600 years in the future, Jesus shows up, and what is the condition of the temple? It's unchanged. It's a den of rock. 600 years later, they still haven't been reformed enough. 
in 7.12, he tells them to go back and remember what happened at Shiloh. I don't know what year it was at Shiloh. I, I, I needed to write that down. Someone, for extra credit, find how, uh, the date between the fall of Shiloh to Jeremiah 7, or the ministry of Jeremiah. What is the time span? Well, however many years, when you go to Shiloh, what do you find? Israel in sin and condemning, and they fail, and they fall short. You get to Jeremiah's time, what do you see? Same thing. And you jump 600 years into the future, what do you see? Same thing. You see the same thing. Meaning that over and over and over, failure, 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 failure. So, we're right back to the original question. Can Judah repent? It's either your theology will say yes or your theology will say no. If your theology says yes, then you have to also say yes to what? That they could do all of those things listed. And if your theology says that they can do it, then you have to explain to me why in all the Bible, from the time they come out of Egypt to the time we open up our New Testament, why do they never do it? Correct? They never pull it off. If you say, well, they can't do it, God is the one who has to grant the repentance, then are you not baffled by why God wouldn't just grant them the repentance? I don't have a good answer for that. But I do know this. Oh, 700 years backwards. I don't remember. I don't have it in front of me. Okay, all right. So if that's 700 years back and 600 years forward, nothing changed. Like, is that the, the most depressing message you've ever heard? 700 years back, you were acting the same way. 600 years in the future, with God himself walking around, you're still acting the same way. Meaning, there's no way to fix this problem. That's, that's law. This is, this is the best picture of law I can give you. You give law to people, what will be the end result of the law given to that people? They will disobey it. I don't, still don't know why Christians think if we establish law, we're going to fix society. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. It doesn't work. Biblically, it doesn't work. So what's the only hope? What's the only hope for Israel? A day's going to come that he's going to make a new covenant with whom? them and that covenant is going to involve God doing a supernatural work in them that has not happened but God is going to do the work for us we are kind of grafted in and we are a part of that new covenant to a certain degree and we reap those benefits in what way not God doing a work in us but God doing a work for us by imputing perfect righteousness and obedience to us, where we have the hope that the day will come when what will happen to us? There'll be no more sin. That's called glorification. The, when you read this, you should be like, there's just no, you should just be like, you should get depressed reading it. You'd be like, they can't, they can't do this. But every sermon turns it into a sermon of what? Forget them. No, no they, 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 they get thrown out of the sermons really fast. It goes to us. You need to be doing these things. Do you feel guilty tonight? Come to the altar. Repent. Do it. And then everyone's like, what a great sermon. It, it was four points and it was 45 minutes. Oh, great. Thank you, pastor. And then everybody walks around thinking they can do it. We, we can't. Nobody can. This is to break you. This is to depress you. This is to discourage you. This is to destroy any confidence one has in the flesh. You're like, they go backwards, they were the same way. They go to the present, they're the same way. They go 600 years into the future, they're the same way. They get destroyed off the face of the earth, okay? In 70 AD, and if you go to Israel today, they're the same way. Oh, and guess who else is the same way? 
the church is the same way. Even though we preach that we're not, that now we have those promises that are given to Israel in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we say those are our promises, and now we have a new heart, and now we can obey. But those passages don't say they can. Those passages says they will obey. Well, that's not happened. It's not happened in the church. It's not happened in Israel. Now, that is a radical, utter destruction of all the theology typically taught in the church, like an absolute, utter, complete, different approach to the entire subject. So if you're confused by it, that's because you've heard all of the other sermons on the subject. And feel free to believe all the other sermons. But, you know, one day you're going to wake up and realize you can't actually do what you claim you can do. And then you're going to have to come to a conclusion. There's got to be a better way to understand this text. Or you just have to come to the conclusion that no one can be saved. No one will ever be saved. Because if it's dependent upon us, it's not going to happen. Just like it never happened for them. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. These are very difficult subjects. I pray we feel the weight of the conviction from it and realize our only hope is not what we can do, but what you have accomplished in Christ. Our trust and hope is in that and in nothing else. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And God's people said,